today we're going to consider how to find true rest in God. And uh, we're going to be in page uh, 226 in the Worship Center Bibles. Uh, it's our third week in the book of Ruth. We've got one more to go. We're taking a chapter a week. Uh, and I thought this morning we'd do some, um, share some practical thoughts about what we can learn about transition and change from the book of Ruth, as we've been mentioning the last uh, two weeks and now today, that there's so much change and transition in our lives that sometimes we can become numb to transition and change, and, and then we don't get to encounter it or see how, what God is doing in the midst of that transition and change and, and how we can engage better. And so I wanna give you some practical thoughts from the last two weeks, first two chapters. Number one, make big decisions slowly, prayerfully, and thoughtfully, and seek input from people who know you well and who will ask you good and direct questions. We get that from chapter one, verses one through five. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi, they didn't realize that their decision to move to Moab would have such significant consequences. And so the second thing we want to learn about, back, yep, thanks. Uh, when you're struggling, you will need a Ruth. And we saw that in chapter one, verses 16 through 18. Naomi was really hurting, and she was uh, bitter and hurt and resentful, and Ruth, upon her conversion, was actually pretty hopeful. And so Naomi needed a Ruth. Uh, difficult times, don't wait for difficult times to come. Cultivate deep and honest relationships, friendships, before the inevitable difficult times come, and so they'll be there when you need them. If we don't cultivate that, we don't have them, difficult times, we find ourselves alone. Number three, God may want to use you as a Ruth in someone else's life. When you're struggling, you're going to need a Ruth. Try to be sensitive. Try to be humble. Try to be available within appropriate boundaries, just like you'd want somebody to do for you. Uh, maybe you, God wants to use you to be a Ruth in someone else's life. Number four, it's okay to be confused, upset, angry, even bitter about your circumstances. Last week we talked about a root of bitterness. That's when we, when we feed our bitterness, uh, fertilize our dark emotions. It's okay to acknowledge I'm hurt, I'm wounded, I'm bitter, I'm angry right now. It's okay. And you can tell God that. He's not a, you, you can't shake God in that. He can take it. But don't feed, don't fertilize those dark, darker emotions. Take them to God. Take them to God. It's okay to take them to God. Number five is when you're in pain, turn to God and to his people and not away from God and away from people. We see that in Ruth 1, that even in Naomi's pain, her struggle, her bitterness, she still cared for and loved Orpah and Ruth, and was available there for them. Uh, number six, when times are tough, actively look for God's grace and favor. We learn this from Ruth in the last chapter, verses 2 and 10 and 13, that her and Naomi got back to Bethlehem, and then Ruth got up, looks like the next day, and went to work, and part of what she said she was doing, I'm looking for God's favor. 
And then when she, in verse 10 and verse 13, she continues to look for and expect God's favor. And when we're going through difficult times, that's something that we can do. Where's God's grace? Where, where, where might I find God's grace? Where might I find God's favor today? And we're actively looking for and searching for that to happen with us. Uh, keep growing in your, in your knowledge and understanding of the Bible. When I was here back in August in the sermon, uh, Duty or Delight, one thing I said is that we're all theologians. But here's the caveat. You're either a good one or you're a bad one. And so I say determine to be a good theologian. And that's part of what we're doing as we study the Bible is we're, uh, we're helping each other become good and strong theologians. And then number eight, seek your primary refuge or rest under the wing of God. We saw this in, in uh, uh, verse 12 of, of uh, chapter 2 last week. And that is what we're also going to be talking about today. Last week we looked at chapter 2. We found that Boaz complimented Ruth because of her willingness to leave her family in Moab and, and to become an immigrant to a hostile country to care for and to serve her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was all alone and who was destitute. But that wasn't the highest compliment that Boaz paid to Ruth, was it? He also complimented her on her conversion to the covenant God of Israel. Here's what it says. This is what Boaz said to Ruth. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Another word for refuge is rest, to find rest and comfort under the wings of God. Here's a biblical truth that I, I think, I believe you can count on. The Lord always rewards those who take refuge under his wing. And I would even add always, 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 always. What's going on when we do that? We find rest for our anxious souls if we take refuge in God or under his wing. Here's how Augustine said it in a prayer. He said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. That every human being on the planet is born with a restless heart that's looking for comfort, for security, for rest. And God is whom we find that comfort and rest in. This is what Boaz was addressing when he experiences Ruth is having taken refuge under the wings of God. This is a good place for us to drop our big idea for today. True rest is not resting from our work, but resting in our work as we take refuge in what God has done through the finished work of Jesus Christ. You and I have the privilege of looking back at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament that we see the accomplishment of the gospel. And so here's this verse from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through the first part of 11. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
For the one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself rested from his good works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Now, a lot of people take this verse to mean it's important for us to take a Sabbath. That's one day of rest before God. And that's important. I I would say whenever we can and try to do that as hard as we can to take that one day. It's hard these days, but do it if you can. But I think what's more important, what this verse is actually saying to us in a deeper level, is that for, for, for Jesus' followers, there's a Sabbath rest available to the people of God seven days a week. That we can live in that rest. Now, we, we don't just live in there forever and nothing pulls us out. We, we pull out from under that, the wings of God all the time. But there's a place, a rest, that God has designed for his people that we can live in. No matter what's going on on the outside, no matter what the circumstances, have you found your rest, your primary comfort, joy, and delight in him? This is what Ruth has happened to Ruth, and this is what Boaz sees in her. What we're going to see in Ruth 3 is how this happens. As we read the chapter, I'd like for you to notice that the first verse and the last verse are about resting. In the first verse, we're going to read it in a moment, we will see that Naomi is seeking to find a place of rest for Ruth. And then in the last verse, verse 18, we will see that Boaz will not rest until the matter is settled. So with that, I'm going to read uh, Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. It's the shortest chapter in Ruth, you'll be happy to hear. So one day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you. And that phrase, permanent home, the literal translation in the Hebrew is a place of rest. I'm going to find a place of rest for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now do as I tell you and, and, and take a bath and put on perfume and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he has finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. I will do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of a pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over, and he was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer." Now, I just imagine that there were several moments of silence between the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. If you got awakened out of a dead sleep with somebody laying at your feet, you might try and think about what's going on. So, eventually, he gathers his mind, his thoughts, and he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. That's a term of endearment. Uh, Boaz exclaimed, you are showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after younger men a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. 
But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there is another man who is more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I will talk to him. If he is willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he is not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until morning. And so Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until morning, but she got up before the, it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. He measured six scoops of barley into a cloak and placed it on her back. And then he returned to town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? And Ruth told Naomi everything that Boaz had done for her. And she added, he gave me six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. Pray with me. Kind Father, we come to you. Uh, we ask that you would be the primary teacher today, that you would um, enlighten our hearts and show us what you want each of us to see and to engage with today. So we commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are three distinct sections in chapter 3, and it's the same structure, actually, as chapter 2. In chapter 2 and in chapter 3, we have a domestic scene where we have Ruth and Naomi talking, and then Ruth goes out to meet with Boaz, so we have a field scene, and then the chapter ends with another domestic scene with Ruth and Naomi engaging and talking. And so I want to show you those three scenes, and then uh, we'll, we'll identify them, and then I'd like to go back and look at each one, one at a time, and see what we can learn there about resting. So verses 1 through 5, domestic scene. Verses 5 through 15, field scene. And verses 16 through 18, back in the domestic scene. So let's go back and look at them one at a time. And what we see in the first five verses is that Naomi's depression and grief and bitterness are giving way to hope. It's, it's lifting a little bit. The dark clouds have begun to part. Uh, the sheer fact that Naomi has a strategy, it teaches us something. When Naomi was reawakened to the kindness of God, and this happened in verse 20 of, of chapter 2, when Ruth came back after gleaning in the field, and Naomi said, uh, where did you glean today? In whose field? And she said, a guy named Boaz. She didn't know that he was a family redeemer. And so what happened when that happened is Naomi saw that God was at work in her life. And so some of the bitterness and the discomfort, the anger began to lift in her heart and in her soul, and she began to see that God was up to something. And her hope comes alive, and she begins to dream. She begins to strategize again. And now she's confirmed concerned with finding Ruth a place of rest and security, and she makes a plan. And here are Naomi's instructions to Ruth. It says, wash yourself, anoint yourself with perfume. It's, it's more like what we have today, the essential oils. It's a little bit more like that. It was, it was oils instead of just straight perfume. Put on your best clothes. 
And some commentators would say that this amounts to wedding apparel. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say a wedding dress, but wedding apparel. That's your best clothes. So she encouraged Ruth to do that. Go down to the threshing floor. That's where you beat out the wheat with a, a, a threth, threshing sledge or the weight of an ox and the hooves crushing the grain to separate the grain from the, from the chaff and the stalks. Uh, and when he lies down, you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. And then he will tell you what to do. All these things are instructions. They, they all have meaning, and we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. But I'd like us to consider the verses 6 through 15. And this is admittedly a strange scene. It was a strange scene for back then. It would be a strange scene for us in the light of our 21st century anything goes uh, morality. It's true that this is, uh, uh, could be considered a seductive, even erotic, at least a romantic element to it. But what we see here is the picture of purity and decorum. They are very respectful of one another. Let me just stop and say that if you're a therapist, this might be too simplistic for you, but I, I think it will get my point across. And it's the difference between lust and love. Uh, lust is getting. I want, I want, I need. Love is giving. Lust is getting, love is giving. I was an athlete in high school and college, and so I spent some time in locker rooms, and on Monday mornings, the talk was often about, did you get any this weekend? Did you get any? And the one thing that I never heard anybody say in the locker room was, did you give any? Did you give anything this weekend? I didn't hear that. But this is what we see in Boaz and in Ruth. They're constantly giving and loving uh, appropriately one another when they engage and they interact. Once again, we see Ruth's humble assertiveness in action here. To lay at Boaz's feet is, is a sign, a picture of her humility and her submission. But we also see that Ruth did not follow Naomi's instructions to the letter. Did you notice when I read that? That she, that's, she didn't do what Naomi asked her to do in, in total. At the end of verse 4, Naomi says, lie down and then he will tell you what you shall do. But what does Ruth do? In verse 9, Ruth doesn't wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. She, in fact, tells Boaz what to do. She's saying, marry me. She's not waiting for Boaz to propose. She's proposing. And this is very interesting. This is even kind of out of sorts for our time today. We hear of on occasion, a woman asking a man, proposing to a man, but generally speaking, it's the men who propose to women. But here's Ruth, in ancient Israel, proposing marriage to Boaz. I want you to see her humility and her assertiveness. We talked a little bit about this last week. A lot of us in the room, we can be one or the other. We can be humble, and sometimes we're assertive. But when, when somebody, when one of us can be both of those things, we can be humble and assertive, it means that we're kind of emotional healthy, emotionally healthy, that we can, we can walk in those two things at the same time. We're humble and 
or assertive. If we could carry this on, it's the typical description of a Christian, of a Christ follower. We're humble because we know we're sinners, and we're bold because we know that we're loved. So the typical Jesus follower should be, can be, both humble and bold, humble and assertive, and that's the, what we see uh, Ruth doing here. Um, yeah, Ruth is all in at this point. If she goes down to the threshing floor, lays there, Boaz awakens, and if Boaz rejects her proposal, there's no way that she, she could say to him, what, did you think I was interested? She, she can't back out. You see, she's burned every bridge. She's gone there, and she's, she's in wedding apparel, laying at his feet, and she's all in. And I think this was a dialogue that when, back in chapter 2, when Ruth came back from gleaning in Boaz's field, and she kind of processes everything that went on during the day and the engagement. And last week, we talked about some subtle flirting that went on in chapter 2 between Boaz and Ruth that we saw it. And then as Naomi and Ruth talked about it, that's why they built this plan that they carried out, that Ruth carried out here in chapter 3. Because there was a sense of attractiveness. There was a sense that God seemed to want them together. It's important for us to see what Ruth says as she lays at Boaz's feet. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Ruth is hearkening back to chapter 2, verse 12, when she says this. Boaz, back then, uh, 2.12 says, May the Lord, the, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. The literal translation for this word covering here in chapter 3, verse 9, is wing. That's the literal translation of that word cover. And so Ruth is saying to Boaz, I have found my primary covering, my primary rest under the wing of God. Now I want you to cover me with your wing. And let's not forget that this is ultimately for Naomi's sake in this. We'll talk more about that next week. And as I mentioned before, I think there's probably several moments of silence between the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10. Have you ever been awakened out of a dead sleep with somebody asking you a question? I was thinking about that this week, and I have. And it's one of the the most embarrassing moments that I've had as a pastor. So I thought you'd want to know. Of course. And so this guy came for pastoral counseling one day. This was a a long time ago. And I had in my office this sectional, this couch. And I could tell he was nervous when he came in. So I tried to act extra relaxed. And I kind of stretched out in the corner of the couch. And you can imagine where I'm headed with this. I fell asleep. Great pastor. And I woke up to him saying, are you asleep? And of course, what did I say? No. I withdrew, you know, out of the corner of my mouth. No, I'm not asleep. And I can't remember now if he left the church or stayed in the church or forgave me or got mad at me. I don't don't know. But that's my story of being in a dead sleep and someone asking me a question. I'm sure that's happened to you as well. 
Boaz, in verse 10, though, when he collects his thoughts, so he, he gets awakened, he's going, what's going on here? Is this a dream? What, what, what's, what's up? But then, in verse 10, I think that's where he tells Ruth why he has fallen in love with her. He says this, the Lord bless you, my daughter. Again, that's a term of endearment. You are showing even more family loyalty. That's that word has said. The, it's the Hebrew word that we don't have an English equivalent for, but it's, it's the proactive, pursuant love of God. You are showing even more has said now than you did before, for you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. See, Ruth could have gone out and just tried to find her own safety and security, but she was committed to Naomi. What Boaz is saying to Ruth here is that you are a woman of sterling loyalty, godly character, and I want to be your husband. And let me just stop again and say, if you're here today and you're not married and would like to be married, some people are not married and don't want to be married. And Paul said, actually, that's a good thing. But if you're here today and you want to be married, I have some advice for you that I think comes from here and other places in Scripture. If you're not married and you want to be married, you have a list of things that you're looking for in a spouse. Here's my encouragement to you. You rip up that list and throw it away. Get rid of it. And work on becoming someone who finds their true rest and comfort and security in God. And then in the midst of your life, as you're going through your life, look for someone else that has found their rest, comfort, and security in God. And I think you'll find there will be an attraction at that point. Why are Ruth and Boaz a good match? Remember, there's no indication in the whole book of Ruth that Ruth was attractive or that Boaz was attractive. I think the author does this on purpose to make sure that we see that there's a deeper attraction. And what's the basis of their attraction? I've already mentioned it, but both Ruth and Boaz have found their ultimate rest in God. Remember the Augustine quote, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. Both Ruth and Boaz have found their primary comfort, joy, delight, and security in God. And it seems from reading chapter 2 and now this moment that they shared together in chapter 3, that when they first met in chapter 2, they recognized a settledness in each other that was instantly attractive. That's why when Boaz didn't seem to have much of a problem with the reality of a closer relative. It seems kind of unromantic and unengaged, but I think because Boaz loved God more than Ruth. Is there anything that you love more than God? The Bible would call that an idol, something that takes the place of God. Good things can become idols in our lives. Our kids can become idols in our lives. There's lots of things. We could go into that. But Boaz loved God more than Ruth. 
And he was trusting that God's will would be done in his engagement with this closer relative. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And then number three, verses 16 to 18, Ruth debriefing what happened with Naomi. There's lots of things in there, but there's only one thing I want to point out to you today. When Ruth told Naomi what had happened, I can see Naomi with a wry and knowing smile when she said, the man won't rest until he has settled things today. Do you know what the literal translation of that sentence is in the Hebrew? The dude is hot to trot. That's actually not the literal translation. That's, that's a paraphrase. You might have guessed that. But nevertheless, that's what I think it's saying. The dude is hot to trot. So as we begin to bring this to a close, I, I, we need to ask, like I've been asking the last two weeks, how does this passage point us to Jesus Christ? And what I noticed in Naomi's instructions to Ruth regarding how she approached Boaz that there were some parallels for us in the New Testament to help us prepare our hearts to come before Jesus. So let me just quickly go through those. The first one is uh, Naomi told Ruth to wash herself. And in the New Testament parallel, I found Titus 3, verse 5. God saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We can't make ourselves clean enough to be in the presence of God, but what we can do is depend on what Jesus accomplished through his death and resurrection. As we come to spend time with Jesus, I think we would do well to celebrate the salvation that we have been given. That as we go to spend time with God, that we say, thank you for saving me. That was kind of the main point last week. To be grateful for the grace and the mercy that he has extended that allows us to be in his presence. So start with saying thank you. The second thing is, she said, anoint yourself. And I saw a parallel in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27. It says this, John says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And as, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things. Affirm, as we go to spend time with God, affirm and celebrate the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I don't think any of us make enough use of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But when we're going to spend some time with God to acknowledge, Holy Spirit, I want you to teach me here. I submit myself to you. Teach me as you begin to get into God's word. And then put on your best clothes. This was kind of an easy one for me. I saw a parallel in 1 Peter 5, 5. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Have you ever, in a, in a season of your life, felt like you were kicking against the goad, that you were just hitting a blank wall? If, if that happens, or when that happens, I should say, the first thing I would encourage you to think about is, is where's my pride getting in the way? Where do I need to humble myself in my relationship with God and other people? Because it's so, it clo so clearly says here, God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
So take every opportunity you can to humble yourself before God and before people. And then number four, go down to the threshing floor. A threshing floor, if you've never heard this description, it was usually a large rock, and it's where the, the grain was crushed in order to separate the grain from, as I said before, the stalks and, and the, uh, what's, what's it called, the chaff. So they crush it either with a threshing sledge, it's two pieces of wood that's connected by a leather strap, and they would, they would crush it by snapping it, or an oxen would walk over that and crush and separate the grain from the, tra- the, the chaff. And then they'd pile it up, and the afternoon wind, there's a, 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 a threshing fork that they'd stick in this pile, and they'd throw it up in the air, and the wind would take the chaff away, and the, the grain would be settled there. And so it's, it's saying, go down to the threshing floor. Here's the verse that I thought was a parallel. Luke 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But he on whom it falls will be crushed. The threshing floor has spiritual significance for us. It's the place where we come in humility and surrender ourselves to God. We surrender ourselves to his training, his discipline, his instruction in our lives. And if we go and we choose to go to the threshing floor, that will be much better for us than waiting for the threshing rock to fall on us. Choose to go. Choose to surrender yourself afresh. And and I don't know about you, but I need to do this like every day. Surrender myself every day to God. And then number five, the last one, go uncover his feet and, and lie down. This is where we learn to wait on the Lord. And that's hard. That's hard for us to wait on God. God has a perfect plan. He has a timetable, and you and I are often in a hurry. But here's the passage I found for this as a parallel. It's in the Old Testament, Isaiah 40:31. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. As I said, this is a passage where we learn how to wait on God. Waiting is active. It's not passive. Uh, I, I was a, a server in a restaurant during college. And the goal of waiting on a table, right, is to watch that table or two or three or four or five tables, and whatever they need, you hop to it. Make sure that they get it. And so waiting, I want to tell you, is active. It's worship, it's waiting, it's serving, it's loving God. So I'll close with this. I want to tell you a little story. One of the main themes that rolls out in the book of Ruth is the sovereignty of God. It's a core doctrine of the Christian faith, and sometimes it's a bit mysterious and difficult for us to understand. So there was a guided tour of a museum, and the guide led the group into this darkened room. As the guide flipped the switch, a light shone on what looked like a large piece of fabric that appeared to have these random, haphazard, even chaotic pieces of of string spread throughout the fabric, every which way. And the guide asked the group what they thought it might be. 
And one guest said her best guess was that it was some kind of random, arbitrary, distinctly unattractive form of modern art. And then the tour guide moved them around to the other side of the fabric. And what they observed was breathtaking. It was a magnificent tapestry, stunning in its beauty, logical and ordered in its design. It was a great masterpiece, created, crafted with love by a master artist. Our view of life, our perspective, is it can be compared to looking at the backside of a tapestry. But one day, all of us will get to go around to the other side. We'll get to see how God sees our life, how God sees the world. Our view of life, our perspective, can be compared to looking at that backside of a tapestry. Someday we'll move around to the other side. We'll see from God's perspective. We'll be awed. We'll be humbled by the breathtaking and stunning beauty of His plan, His sovereign plan, and by the logical and ordered design of God. Every thread woven into place with dedicated love, with determined care, and predetermined mercy. If you're here today and you haven't surrendered your heart and your life to Jesus, this is a great day to do that. You can talk to me, you can talk to someone who's been up here or someone that looks like they know what they're doing out there. Uh, we would love to talk to you more about that. We hope this can be a place where people with questions and issues and problems who are considering the, the, the claims of Christ to be able to come here and walk with us for that season.